welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links that are in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leaving a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review because some uh, outlets don't allow you to do that, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, so that is always appreciated. In this week's show, we're going to cover, we're, in the first segment, we're going to spend our time covering the mass shooting event in Georgia, which left several Asian women dead, all of whom worked in Asian massage parlors. This was made out to be a very big event, proving that there was anti-Asian hate crimes and that we have a problem against Asians in this country. So we're going to cover the numbers on that, as well as some pretty significant misrepresentations and falsehoods in the media about this story. And then in the second segment, we're going to do the normal COVID-19 update and also go through some really good news on how companies like Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson are increasing their production. There's some really cool things they're doing, and there's some really cool speed updates that they've had on that front. And then finally, the light item this week is dedicated to none other than March Madness, which is ongoing, and also why I'm recording so late this week. It's almost midnight for me, and I just had to see the end of the Oregon State game. So, We're going to hear a clip from that as well. So that's the agenda for this week's show, and we can jump right in. So as I said, we're going to start off with this uh, anti-Asian hate story that has been going on in the media. It's been one of the bigger stories over the last week or so, uh, and it's where this guy walked into an Asian massage parlor, and he killed the women who worked there. So obviously an awful event. They caught him, and now he's set to be charged and will eventually, more than likely, go away to prison for the rest of his life unless they can get the death penalty. I think there's probably a shot at them being able to get this just because of the premeditated nature of this and just the gruesomeness of it. I think that could be on the table here. It'll depend on how the prosecutors decide to push forward on it, and I wouldn't be opposed to them doing that in this case. It certainly does seem to warrant it. But anyway, the media immediately spun this story as a symptom of anti-Asian hatred and a hate crime, specifically. They also used this to spin up their accusations that this country is filled with white supremacy, and this was yet another instance of that issue popping up. Now, if this was true, this would be a big charge and worth dealing with in this country and overall. The problem is that there's no evidence that that's what happened in this specific instance. Yes, there is a mass shooting. Yes, several Asian women died. But it does not appear that anti-Asian biases were involved here. And you may also have seen some memes and vile efforts put out that claim that the police said the perpetrator had just had a, quote, bad day. So that was also wrong. So we're going to get through and cover that, and we're going to talk through all these, all the coverage in the media. So there, there's a lot to go through here, uh, just a lot to unpack overall, because it's an awful event, but what it's being used to portray isn't quite right. In particular, I appreciated what Andrew Sullivan wrote at, at his Substack newsletter, The Dish. Uh, he wrote, and, and I'm going to link this in the show notes because it's a longer piece and it's really good, And he also provides links to all the actual reported pieces in this, places like the New York Times, the Washington Post. So they're actual reported pieces of what took place as opposed to basically the opinion pieces that were masquerading as news that described what people thought they wanted to have taken place. So here's what Sullivan wrote. He says, here's the truth. We don't yet know why this man did these horrible things. It's probably complicated. Or as my therapist used to say, multi-determined. 
That's why we have thorough investigations and trials in America. We only have one solid piece of information as to motive, which is the confession by the mass killer to law enforcement. He confessed that he was a religious fundamentalist who was determined to live up to the chastity and repeatedly failed, as is often the case. Like the 9-11 bombers or the mass murderer in the Pulse nightclub, he took out his angst on the source of what he saw as his temptation and committed mass murder. This is evil in the classic fundamentalist sense, a perversion of religion and sexual repression into violence. We should not take the killer's confession as definitive, of course. But we can probe it, and indeed, his story is backed up by acquaintances and friends and family. The New York Times originally ran one piece reporting this out. The Washington Post also followed up with one piece citing contemporaneous evidence of the man's, quote, religious mania and sexual compulsion. It appears that the man frequented at least two of the spas that he attacked. He chose the spas, his ex-roommate said, because he thought they were safer than other ways to get easy sex. Just this morning, the New York Times ran a second piece which confirms that the killer had indeed been in rehab for sexual impulses, was a religious fanatic, and his next target was going to be, quote, a business tied to the pornography industry. We have yet to find any credible evidence of anti-Asian hatred or bigotry in this man's history. Maybe we will. We can't rule it out. But we do know that his roommates say that they once asked him if he picked the spas for sex because the women were Asian, and he said they denied it, saying that he thought those spas were just the safest way to have quick sex. Now, this needs to be checked out more, but the only piece of evidence about possible anti-Asian bias points away, not toward it. And yet... Well, you know what's coming. Accompanying one original piece on the known facts... The New York Times ran nine, nine separate stories about the incident as part of the narrative that this was an anti-Asian hate crime fueled by white supremacy and or misogyny. Not to be outdone, the Washington Post ran 16 separate stories on the incident as an anti-Asian white supremacist hate crime. 16. One story for the facts 16 stories on how critical race theory would interpret the event regardless of the facts. For good measure, one of their columnists denounced reporting of the law enforcement's version of events in the newspaper because it distracted attention from the, quote, real motives. Today, the New York Times ran yet another full-on critical theory piece disguised as news on how these murders are proof of the structural racism and sexism because some activists say they are. Now, mass killers, if they are motivated by bigotry or hate, tend to let the world know. The suspected attacker in Pittsburgh allegedly said he wanted to, quote, kill Jews while rampaging inside a synagogue. Police said the man charged with killing the people at an El Paso Walmart told them he was targeting, quote, Mexicans that day. And the man who massacred black parishioners inside a Charleston church detailed his racist motivations at length. This mass murderer in Atlanta actually denied any such motive, and, to repeat myself, there is no evidence for it, and that he has been true on that point from the very start. And yet, a friend forwarded me a note swiftly sent to the students and faculty at Harvard, which sums up the instant view of our elite. Quote, Many of us woke up yesterday to the horrific events of the vicious and deadly attack in Atlanta, the latest in a wave of increasing violence targeting Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander community. This violence has a history from Chinese exclusion to the nativist rhetoric amplified during the pandemic. The anti-Asian hostility has deep roots in American culture. And on and on. It was almost as if they had a pre-existing script to read, whatever the facts of the case. Nicole Hannah-Jones, the most powerful journalist of the New York Times, took to Twitter in the early morning of March 17th to pronounce, quote, Last night's shooting and the appalling rise in anti-Asian violence stems from a sick society where nationalism has been stoked and normalized. Ibram Kendi tweeted, quote, Locking arms with Asian Americans facing this lethal wave of anti-Asian terror. Their struggle is my struggle. Our struggle is against racism and white supremacist domestic terror. When the cops reported the killer's actual confection, left-wing Twitter went nuts. Uh, 
One gender studies professor recited, recited the litany, quote, the refusal to name anti-Asianness, racism, white supremacy, misogyny, or class in this whiteness is doing what is always done around justifying its death dealing. To ignore the deeply racist and misogynistic history of hypersexualization of Asian women in this explication of in this explication from law enforcement is what emboldened this killer is also a willful erasure. Basically, she's blaming the police for erasing the real motives here by just reporting the facts. Sullivan continues, In the root, the real reason for the murders was detailed. Quote, White supremacy is a virus that, unlike under other viruses, will not die until there are no bodies left for it to infect. Which means the only way to stop it is to locate it, isolate it, extract it, and kill it. Trevor Noah insisted that the killer's confession was self-evidently false. Quote, you killed six Asian people. Specifically, you went there. Your murders speak louder than your words. What makes it even more painful is that we saw it coming. We see these things happening. People have been warning. People in the Asian communities have been tweeting. They've been saying, quote, please help us. We're getting punched in the street. We're getting slurs written on our doors. Noah knew the killer's motive more surely than the killer himself. And none of them mentioned that the killer killed two white people as well, a weird thing for a white supremacist to do, and also injured a Latino. None pointed out the connection between the spas with that the Villar killer had visited them. None explained why, if he were associating with Asian people with COVID-19, he would nonetheless expose himself to the virus by having sex with them, or regard these spas as, quote, safer than the other ways to have quick sex. They didn't explain this because, in their worldview, they didn't need to. What you need to see here is social justice ideology insisting, as Dean Banquet temporarily explained in the New York Times, that intent doesn't matter. What matters is impact. The individual killer is, in some ways, irrelevant. His intentions are not material. He is merely a vehicle for the structural oppressive forces critical theorists believe in, and this, quote, story is what the media elites decided to concentrate on. The thing that, so far as we know, didn't happen. Now, that's just a fantastic piece of writing by Sullivan. He goes on. There's more to it. Uh, goes through some other issues. The, the mass shooting event that happened and seemingly before we even have an arrest, we had a full-blown narrative getting launched at warp speed. Uh, and so I would highly recommend going through the rest of his piece and reading it because it is just great. And it reminds me a bit here, going back to college, of listening to critical theorists explain what was happening in novels. Because at one point, most of these people were confined to English departments where they could peddle all their various theories about what was happening in a novel. And, you know, that was mostly harmless, even if it was dumb at that time, because they were trying to read so much what was happening in between the lines and produce basically their own version of the novel with all these events. But what's happened now is that they've taken those theories and are applying them in real time to actual events and then are inventing their own version of events on everyone else, and then saying, if you deny this, you're denying reality. What's happening here is we have the facts, we know what happens. There's questions about what happened on forward, but when you start inserting all these theories, you're inventing facts, as a lawyer would say, that are not in evidence. So the best motive we have right now that this is that this guy was some kind of religious nutcase, and we really do need more proof on that front. That's why we have an investigation going. Back during Christmas, Nashville experienced a bombing that happened right downtown on the main street, and there were a lot of conspiracies launched about why that happened, both on the left and the right. Everything from this was a big right-wing plot, this was a big left-wing plot, there were aliens and lasers, the whole nine yards. And it turned out the guy was just a straight-up nutcase. He was the one that believed in lizard peoples and aliens, just the whole nine yards. He basically believed that the X-Files were real. Well, we need to find out what happened here. This guy in Georgia appears to have had religious motivations. There's probably some sexual repression involved here. And it's tempting to call all of this domestic terrorism, but there also does not appear to be any political motivation here that we can see right now. Terrorism has to have some kind of political undertone here, and we don't have that. We just have a nutcase who does something crazy. It sounds like he should have been locked up well before this if all his friends and family are saying this about him. 
So if things stay as they are right now, based on the evidence that we seem see, the odds that a hate crime charges are brought against him are actually very low here because there's no evidence of racial animus here. And that matters when you're trying to charge a guy like this. That's going to matter for a prosecutor. They've guaranteed, you know, just looking at the facts as we have them, they've got him on first-degree murder. There's premeditation, there's a confession, and there's more. So you have all about there. This is not a manslaughter case. This is more than likely first some form of first-degree murder, however they define that in Georgia, because each state is a little different. But it looks like they could go for the full enchilada on this one, which is why I think you'll see the death penalty on the docket here. They could go that route. And usually if they do, that takes a little more time because you've really got to get your ducks in a row. But it, it just based on these facts, I don't see a hate crime here because you can't prove that that happened. Just by saying, just because an Asian person was involved does not mean that they were murdered on the grounds of a hate crime. There are, I mean, there are laws here. They, those laws have words in them and those words have meanings. And all of the lefties that I know who are claiming otherwise are choosing to live in an alternative reality here. The other thing is, you know, so that, that's the case here. The other thing you have to deal with here is that what people have gotten worked up over is that there are these viral videos going around where people are accusing the police in this case of giving this mass shooter here a pass by just saying that he had a bad day. Well, that also never happened. And I've got a link in the show notes. If you want to watch this whole video, you can. So what happened is that the police, in their public statements that they were making, they were they were giving the reporters direct and verbatim quotes from the confession they got from the killer. They were describing exactly the information they had and giving that out to the public. There was very little hiding about what the information that they had here, which is why we're actually further along here than we are in most of these cases, because they, they got a confession and they repeated that to the press here. And so these clips that you've seen are purposely misedited here to make the police look bad, and then the reports of that have also been bad. People have not watched the full clip. So, Robbie Suave at Reason Magazine, he summed it up with this. He has a link to it if you want to see it in in his piece. He says, a police officer excusing the killer's actions as merely a result of him having a, quote, bad day would be indeed contemptible. But that's not what happened. In fact, many of the people so infuriated about the quote were misled by Vox reporter Aaron Rupar's edit of the video. The full video, the relevant section starts at about 13 minutes and 50 seconds in the video that he has, makes clear that Jay Baker, the police spokesman, was not providing his own commentary, but rather summarizing what the killer had told investigators. The quote, bad day line, was preceded by a clarification that this was the killer's own explanation as his, as related to the police. Baker and the police department did not endorse it. Nor did the captain endorse the killer's statement that the killings were unrelated to racism. He makes clear he's relaying the comments from the killer. Quote, he claims that, and... As the chief said, this is still early, but he does claim that it was not racially motivated, end quote. Again, the police spokesman is telling reporters what the killer said, not applying his own spin. And later, when another reporter asked about this, Jay Baker stepped aside so that Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms could explain the efforts being undertaken to protect Asian Americans at the time of this heightened concern. It would be naive of the police or the public or anyone else to accept what the alleged killers say on face value. It's similarly naive to assume that the sex and ethnicity of the victim tells us everything we need to know about the crime. The police should investigate the matter dispassionately and relay to the public whatever information they gather. Too often, law enforcement uses such press conferences to engage in wild speculation. This was a refreshing example of the cops not doing that. So what we have here is the police department and the mayor relaying actual facts to the public, and what has been done here is a national journalist, specifically in this case a guy at Vox, have spun this in a way to make it seem as if the police were endorsing what the killer said. And they deceptively edited it to get to that point, and now we have this whole thing here spun up. And again, there's a link in the notes here. If you want to go watch the video yourself, he points out where you can start, and you can watch to the end. 
you can see this for yourself. I'm not trying to hide the ball here. I don't really want to play the clip here because I think I'm going to end up going long today. I've got other stuff I've got to cover. So, But if you want to, you can go in and go through, I think it's about an hour and a half long, hour long press conference, and you can cover it all yourself here. And so what is so frustrating about this event and what's frustrating about others is that you have to cut through, you have to spend more time and energy figuring out what actually happened and then cutting through all the noise of people talking about what they wanted to happen and talk about that and cutting through all those opinion pieces masquerading as news just to get to the facts and then from there you can build up and figure out okay here's what happened what do i need to think about this what can we gather from this and there's been so few i mean you you heard me read through sullivan's piece he was only able to find a handful of actual, factual, reported pieces that told you what happened. Everything else, the mass majority of everything else was just opinion pieces where people were telling you what to think in the news section. And so it's, and the thing about this, it's not that violence against Asians doesn't exist. It does. It's just that this case doesn't prove that point. These are two different stories not intersecting at all. And if you wanted to talk about white supremacy and racism, you're not going to go to Georgia to talk about that. That's not where these incidents are taking place. So, well, there actually, there have been studies about this. So, there was a study put out, I think it was by a group called Stop Stop Hate Against Asian Americans or Stop Asian American Hate. It was something, one of those types of phrases. And they they gathered all this information and they said that they these are not just solely hate crimes. These are hate instances where you were either called a slur there was graffiti, you were spat upon, you know, in a pandemic, if you were spat upon, that's more, that's far closer to some form of assault because you don't want to get the virus. So this is a very, what I'm basically trying to get to you is that this is a very broad brushed way to look at this. Where are all of these hate instances happening? And so here are the top states. The number one state where you are most likely to be impacted by either a, you know, a hateful word being said to you being attacked, or anything like that. The number one state is California. California accounts for the mass majority of all hate-related incidents against Asians with 44.56%. So basically 45% of all the total instances of Asian American hate occur in California. That's nearly 1,700 total instances that they had documented in this study. All in California. So if there's a white supremacy problem here against Asians, then apparently we need to start in California, not Georgia. That's where we've got to go, because nearly half of all the instances are occurring in this one state. And so we need to actually go there. They're they're, they're by far the leader of the pack on this front. Second place. Just flip coasts, because we're going to the East Coast. Second place is New York. They contribute 13.62% of all incidents for a total of 517 total. So there's quite the gap between them and California. California accounts for about 1,700 instances. I mean, New York has a little over 500. Those are your first and second place. Third place is Washington State, which eats up 4.5% of all instances with 158 total hate events against Asians. If you add up those three states by themselves, they account for more than 60% of all incidents in the America, and then you get into the rest of the states, which account for 1% to 2% overall. The fourth state is Texas. They're barely over the 100 mark, and everyone else has under 100 instances in between 1% to 2 or fewer percentage points. So, three states account for about over 60%. The rest of the states account for the remainder in the 1% to 2% range. So... Again, if there are is a white is a white supremacy problem against Asian Americans, it's occurring in three of the bluest states in America. California gave more votes to Biden than anyone, and then you've got New York, which is they, they don't want to get rid of Cuomo right now. That's how blue they are. And then Washington State is not exactly a bastion of conservatism. They're up there on the Pacific Coast that is solidly blue. So if there is a white supremacy problem, it is happening right under these progressives' noses. 
And if you want to read that study, I've got it linked in the show notes too. I mean, this this whole segment could just really be summed up as I went and gathered facts about this story, and I'm here to deflate all the stupid memes on social Facebook and social media. If you want to read the facts, go read them yourself. And I think quite possibly going through all of this, the dumbest take that I saw was probably on LinkedIn. I didn't, I was literally just scrolling through to see some job updates from friends. And I saw someone like this one where they said that Trump using the phrase, quote, China virus is the reason that we're dealing with these kinds of hate crimes today, which was also alluded to in the New York Times and Washington Post opinion pieces. They were all basically trying to get to this point that this only happened because of Trump. Which makes utterly no sense at all. Not just based on the facts. I mean, if you look at the facts, you Trump, and then there's those facts. They do not line up. That's not the type of event that we're seeing here. And he, he, the thing about the China virus line that he used, or the China flu that it was called early on, or the Wuhan flu that was called like between January and March. That was the name of COVID-19 for that period of time. The thing about all that is that we use the country or city of origin to describe a virus or where disease comes from all the time. We're doing it right now. I mean, you had in the past, you have things like the Spanish flu or the Hong Kong flu. Right now, we're using it with COVID-19 because right now we have the UK variant, the Brazil variant, the New York variant, the South African variant, and there are variants even more than across the world. I think there's even a second UK variant that I've heard people talk about. These types of descriptors are normal, and we use them all the time. It's that's really no different than China virus, because Trump's use of China virus was a blunt way meant to place blame on China for the release of this virus on the world, which, given China's efforts to cover up the existence of this virus and his their refusal to tell the WHO the truth, has directly led to millions of people dying. I mean, China is to blame for all of this, literally all of this, this this. This is not the first time that they've had some kind of disease get loose on them. That's why all these Asian countries over there from Japan, the Koreas, they were all prepared for this. The rest of the world was not because this really got loose. China lied the entire way through this. This is not even the first form of SARS that has gotten loose. The other forms of SARS came from China. We were just able to hop on them, and the WHO actually had a backbone then, so we could get them to force China to answer for this. So... There was a reason for all that, and anti-Asian sentiment was not the reason for this. The last point I want to make on this. So let's take absolutely everything, and this is just sort of a sort of a devil's advocate type deal, or kind of a, a hypothetical. I want you to go on here. So let's take everything that the left is arguing about, where we have a society that is truly hateful towards Asians. We have a white supremacy problem against Asian, and let's say there is. True blue systemic racism and all their pieces are correct. Now, wouldn't you say that the government should do everything in its power to stop that sort of thing? I mean, I think the natural answer there is yes. So if the Democratic Party believes this, then why was one of the first things that the Biden administration did when it took office was drop a lawsuit being pursued by the Department of Justice, by the Trump administration, against Yale University and Harvard University and other Ivy Leagues, suing those institutions on the basis that they had discriminated against, among uh, many groups, one specifically, though, was Asian students. The Trump administration was suing these universities because they were discriminating against Asians and other students. And Yale and Harvard engaged in explicit discrimination against Asian students. That's actually not a point at issue here. That actually happened. There are admissions. Their numbers approved it much. Yale has said otherwise, but when you look through their numbers, they did a lot of these things. And so the Biden administration dropped it. They dropped it on the grounds that this, these lawsuits were going to attack affirmative action. But if hate against Asians is important... Why would we allow any discrimination against them? Why would you allow this form of systemic racism against Asians to exist? Especially in a lawsuit involving the Department of Justice. That kind of seems to be in their wheelhouse for hammering these types of things, if this is the problem which they say it is. And you also note, in all those thousands of words spilled on in the pages of elite media, New York Times, Post, and Aura, they don't mention those cases. 
they're fine with that kind of discrimination, even if, by their own logic, that makes them white supremacists or enablers of some form of systemic racism. They're fine with this one. It protects their kinds of institutions. These are where the elites protect themselves. They don't want you to attack their institutions if those are in, those are the ones who are alleged to have had wrongdoing here. They're fine with attacking a place like Georgia and saying, well, white supremacy is why that happened, even though the facts don't bear it out. The facts do bear out there's discrimination in these happening in these elite colleges and universities. They're not willing to go after that. So I'm going to leave you with that. That is the last point I want to make on that one. If this is a problem, you need they need to answer why they're not they don't care about that kind of racism and that type of discrimination. So we're going to take a quick break here, and then when we return, we're going to go through the COVID nineteen update. So as we usually do, let's start out with the COVID-19 numbers and then go on from there. So starting off with testing, testing is largely unchanged this week. We're sitting right at 1.45 million in the seven-day averages, which is basically where it was last week. There's a difference of a few hundred tests between last week and this week, uh, but effectively that means things are unchanged because you're only talking about a few hundred tests. So of those tests, the positivity rate is also effectively unchanged. Last week, the positivity rate was city, of these tests was sitting at 3.58%. This week, it's at 3.69%, which is an increase of 3%. But if you go back two weeks ago, the positivity rate was 3.75%. So we're right within that general range right now between, you know, in between 3.5%, 3.7%. So that's also effectively unchanged. It is a drift up, so, you know, you would take a look at that. But I am right now, I don't know, really think I would think anything above it. If things start to drift back above 4%, then we might need to talk again. But right now, you're talking about small data wiggles, and we're at near all-time lows on that. Well, we are at all-time lows on the positivity rate. So, I am not overly concerned right now. That would have to start ticking up consistently for me to think otherwise. We are, uh, with that positivity rate, the seven-day average on new cases. So if you go take the positivity rate and you look into the number of tests, so you're looking at the raw number of new cases. That is also effectively unchanged. Last week we had 51,000. This week we have 53,000 in the seven-day average. Two weeks ago it was 56,000. So like the positivity rate, things are bouncing in around that fifty to 55,000 range. This is a low ebb for the United States and a post-surge period. So this is not overly concerning from what we're seeing right now. It's also not concerning because hospitalizations and deaths are also not a huge concern right now because those are continuing to drop. So we're improving in hospitalizations. Last week, hospitalizations in the averages were around 38,241. And this week, we're sitting at 34,570. That is the lowest number on the hospitalizations front that we've seen since October 12th, 2020. And so we're getting very close to the lowest hospitalization number that we've recorded in a non-surge time. So the lowest number that we've hit, and this is not counting the pre-spring period, so the lowest number of hospitalizations that we've seen in a non-surge time is 28,724. We set that mark on September 20th. And that was the lowest end of the post-summer surge. And so when we start seeing things drift, that after September 20th, things started to slowly drift back up. It hit that 28,000 mark and then kind of bounced around between 29, 30,000 there, sort of flat until you start seeing things ramp back up in October and November. That was when we started seeing the fall and winter surge start in earnest. So... Right now, we're still we're still dropping on the hospitalizations front, which is a good sign. Obviously, you want to see it drop below thirty thousand. That's really the big mark for me. And then the goal is to get below twenty eight, because then you're going to see real movement, and that is going to be the best movement that we're going to see in this. So, we're about six thousand hospitalizations away from hitting that twenty eight thousand number. Uh, but the first goal, obviously, is to drop below thirty thousand, and we're about forty four hundred hospitalizations away, 4,400 hospitalizations away from that. So again, hospitalizations are at 34,000, 34,570 and are improving and we're making good progress. 
The other area where we're really improving are the number of people in ICUs. So this is going to be the absolute worst of your hospitalizations. Last week, we had about 7,700 people in ICU. Today, there are 6,741. So we've knocked off about 1,000 off that number over the past week. So that is also continuing to improve. The seven-day average on deaths is improving as well. It is now finally below 1,000 a day, sitting at 947. So that is a massive improvement. The, remember, these things peaked at 3,200, and then for it's been forever since we've been able to get them knocked below 2,000, and then now the 1,000 mark. And, and Sunday by itself saw fewer than 500 deaths, which is the first time that's happened since November 2nd, 2020. So... Very good numbers here on all fronts. Hospitalizations, ICUs, deaths are all falling, which is what you want to see when you're talking about these numbers climbing down and really trying to figure out how these vaccinations are working and driving down overall numbers. Uh, And again, vaccinations are, as usual, the best news around. If you want to feel good, go check out the CDC's vaccination data. It will make you feel good on a daily basis. Or you can stop by Bloomberg. They have good data over there as well. So the United States has administered officially 124 million vaccination doses total. 44.1 million people have been totally vaccinated. 81.4 million people have received at least one dose. And so if you're breaking those numbers down a little bit further, that would mean that 25% of the total population has at least one dose of the vaccine. That'd be Pfizer or Moderna, because if you get the Johnson & Johnson, you're moving to the totally vaccinated category. So 25% of the population has at least one of those two. 13.3% of the total population has received at least two doses or a Johnson & Johnson vaccine, meaning they are fully vaccinated at this point. So that number is growing. But as I've said for the last couple weeks, Total population is a bad measuring stick. If you only look at the adult population, which the CDC defines as anyone 18 years of age or older, then 32% of the population has received one dose, and 17.1% has received a full vaccination. So we're getting really close to that 20% mark here. I think we could become close to hitting that this next week, where 20% of the population has full vaccination profile, which means one in five Americans. So these numbers are really going up fast. If you look only at the most vulnerable part of our population, which the CDC defines as anyone 65 years of age or older, 69% have received one dose, at least one dose, and 42% have received a full vaccination panel. So in the next few weeks, probably the next two, you're probably going to see us hit more than 50% of that most vulnerable category, go above the 50% mark. That's also going to start leaking into the next vulnerable category, which is going to be your 55 to 64. And so in Israel, all studies out of there noticed a big drop in the number of hospitalizations, severe sicknesses, and deaths once at least 50% of a given population was achieved, particularly in these most vulnerable categories. And we're getting very close to that with our elderly population there. So getting getting that number, the, the, that number of the 65 and age up group, getting them below or getting them vaccinated and getting that number above 50% is going to be a very key thing happening over the next few weeks. Obviously, the number, even with the one dose, you know, we're at, we're at uh, 69% now. Getting that a number in the one dose category, I think above 75 or 80% is going to lead to improvements because several studies have shown, at least with Pfizer, that one dose is enough to reduce this, the number of cases and hospitalizations that we see in a given population. Two gets to do the guaranteed stuff, but... Some studies are suggesting that one dose of Pfizer and maybe one dose of Moderna, if you only have one of those, the efficiency ratings for that is about the same as Johnson & Johnson. So you're talking about for those first two weeks, you have about 60 to 70% efficiency, and it could go up over time. It's that second dose that just knocks you up into the 90 plus percent category. So that's why it's a good thing that we're doing that. And it's also why Johnson & Johnson, because Johnson & Johnson is also testing going to a double dose uh, situation, sort of like these others. And the only reason that we have it set up like this is because that's how they set up their initial uh, tests for the government. Uh, because MRA and vaccines are new, they went with a double dose 
And because Johnson & Johnson used well-known technology, they were able to say, well, we'll just shoot for a one dose and see how that goes. I think you'll probably end up seeing booster shots for Johnson & Johnson down the road, which will make that a double shot as well. It'll also probably help defeat some of these variants around. So uh, the rate that we're vaccinating is also very good. We're hitting nearly 2.5 million vaccinations a day, if you average everything out in the seven-day average. And we're also consistently staying around 80% of the supply used. Now, obviously, some states are higher than this, some are lower than that. But overall, around the United States, those are really good numbers that to be seen. The other good news, and this is where I wanted to focus for the rest of this segment, is that the supply of vaccines continues to increase. So Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson are making tremendous strides in manufacturing more vaccines every day. So an exclusive report from the Wall Street Journal found that U.S. monthly output for the three authorized vaccines is expected to reach 132 million doses for March, nearly triple the 48 million doses from February, according to estimates by analysts at Evercore ISI. Quote, we really should expect over the course of the next month or so a very substantial increase in the supply, said you in the U.S., said Eric Toner, senior scholar with John Hopkins Center for Health Security. Early bottlenecks sourcing materials have been fixed. Both the production and administration of shots has picked up in recent weeks. Now some 2.5 million people in the U.S. are vaccinated daily, on average up from around 500,000 in early January. Though many who want a vaccine still can't get it, the increased output should be enough to fully vaccinate 76 million people in the U.S. by March, another 75 million in April, and then 89 million more in May, according to estimates from Evercore ISI analysts. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines require two doses. By midsummer, 75% of Americans 12 years of age or older should be vaccinated, according to Morgan Stanley. The vaccines aren't currently authorized for anyone younger than 16, but companies uh, may have results this spring for studies of the shots in adolescents 12 years of age or older, which, if positive, could lead to vaccinations for that age group. The companies are also starting to test the vaccines in children younger than 12, but the results of those studies aren't expected until late this year. And even on those I've seen, apart from that journal report, the the young um, the vaccines for the really young children, I, I wouldn't expect those to see those until late fall. Uh, I would expect like October through December to be sort of the the time when I would expect to see some reports coming out on how those studies are going because they are just getting going. So those are going to be a little bit later down the pipeline. But anyway, if you take those estimates provided by the journal and its sources of those three months, you get a total of around 240 million Americans fully vaccinated in March, April, and May alone, on top of the numbers that we've already done. So this is why I'm so bullish on this, because this is the second report where I've seen people come up with similar numbers here. Bloomberg had a similar count when they were looking at what all these different companies were projecting. Uh, different banks and different investment groups are now making the same type of projections and the Wall Street Journal is now reporting them. So over the next three months, you're going to see north of 200 million people vaccinated. Just straight up. That's going to happen. Those, that's going to match roughly the supply that we have. That's going to match the vaccination rate. I think you're going to, right now we're around two and a half million. I think you're going to see that number climb above three million, which is going to cut down the time that it takes to get people fully vaccinated and for us to hit that you know, magic line of herd immunity, which everybody says is around 75%. You know, herd immunity is one of those things that's a moving target. We're saying 75%, but you're going to get some level of herd immunity as you walk up to that point. So we have a level of herd immunity right now. These vaccines are obviously causing some of these case numbers to come down. So there's good news here, and I think it's going to get better because you have to combine the number of people who have been vaccinated with the people who have had the virus. And all the studies suggest if you've had the virus, you've got immunity to this thing. If you've had a vaccine, you're immune to this thing. So our immunity numbers here are higher than what some of these estimates are saying. It just depends on how you decide to combine those up. So this is why I'm so bullish. And Amer- Americans know this. That's the other thing here. Americans know that these numbers are happening. They know whether or not they've been fully vaccinated. That's why you're seeing economic numbers pick up. You're seeing people go out and travel. You're seeing all of these things happen because people know this. 
They're not stupid. Remember, we didn't start lockdowns in earnest until late March of 2020 and into April. That's when lockdowns happened. We entered an economic recession in February, which is when people started to take this seriously. That's when the American public took this seriously. So the American public opening up now tells you that these people know that they are fully vaccinated and they can start doing things. There are over, you know, we're closing in on that 50 million mark here of people who are fully vaccinated. Those people are going to be free to do anything or they want. That's a lot of people. And they're not dumb. They're going to want to do things. In Israel, they've seen drops of 90 plus percent. I think the last one I saw was 94 percent drop in COVID-19 cases in among the vaccinated population. And so that goes for symptomatic and asymptomatic spread, where it was putting a straight-up halt to any kind of spread. And so if that's just your decrease in caseloads, then your decrease in hospitalizations and deaths is going to be even more dramatic because the percentage of people who actually end up in a hospital, ended up dying because of this virus, is much smaller than what the overall people believe. Because you're talking hospitalizations are about, depending on the state you're in, uh, between 1% to 5%. And so when you've decreased all your cases by 90, 95% as these vaccines are doing, your hospitalizations are dropping close to zero because they're already a small percentage and your deaths are at an even smaller percentage of that. So this thing works in tandem. When these vaccines start drop-kicking case numbers through the floor, that is why you're going to see all these fantastic numbers here and things start to open up. Here's what's likely to happen, though. We could still see a spike of the virus in this country among the non-vaccinated population, and people are going to treat it as an overall surge with everyone, which is going to be stupid. Because it's going to be a because we basically have two Americas now, where we have an increasing number of Americans who are vaccinated who are going to be unaffected by this, and then you have the unvaccinated Americans who are going to continue to be impacted by this thing. And so you cannot treat a surge as the same thing. Now, if a surge happens and it's taking out people who have been vaccinated in large numbers, then we can talk. But if it's not, then there are just two versions of everything happening here. And it's unfortunate this is emerging, but it's also something that cannot be avoided because over the next three months, the vaccination numbers are just going to go through the roof. If you want one, you're going to be able to get one over the next three to four months. And so... If you have that kind of coverage with hundreds of millions of shots being available and you've got a fourth coming out here very soon, I mean, we're going to be swimming in shots. That's basically the sum total of what's going to happen here. People are going to be free to do whatever they want. There's going to be potentially another surge here that happens in the unvaccinated population. If we can get more and more people vaccinated, that's going to be blunted and the virus is not going to be to spread as quickly just because you have an increasing herd immunity that's going to be going up over time. Uh, So... That's sort of the different stressors here. We know a surge is happening in Europe right now among certain countries. And in the past, in the summer and in the winter, Europe saw it surge first. And then a few weeks later, we saw it in the United States. So that's why I'm sort of seeing these little, I'm looking at these little wiggles in the case numbers in the United States and kind of looking at them a little bit suspiciously. Because it could be a sign that we're seeing the early, the, an early uptick of these surge in cases again. It also could just be a wiggle in the numbers. We don't really know yet. Uh, so you got to keep an eye on that. But because our vaccination numbers continue to increase, I am less concerned about a surge in overall cases. Because here's the thing. If you have a surge in overall cases, but you don't have a surge in hospitalizations or deaths, you do not have a public health crisis. That is not a problem that a pandem- pandem- about a pandemic. That's just a lot of people have gotten sick from a thing that can be defeated. Because we now can treat it and the healthcare system is not overwhelmed. So if you see cases go up, but they don't lead to hospitalizations or deaths, that's not a public health crisis. We've sort of built up this situation here where people believe that if you just get the virus, that's a bad thing by itself. And it could, I mean, you know, we don't know the long-term health term effects of that. And so you don't want people, you'd like to avoid that as much as possible. But the only reason we have lockdowns and stuff is to protect the healthcare system. If the healthcare system is not overwhelmed, then you do not have a public health crisis. The other concern here are variants. I, you know, I read them off earlier. You have variants in New York, Brazil, and so on and so forth. Those continue to be a potential cause of concern. The most concerning one appears to be the one out of New York right now. Uh, in it is becoming the most dominant strain in New York. It, seems, it appears to be more viral and potentially more lethal. 
But even with those numbers, and even with these variants, uh, cases have not started to tick up any. We're not seeing... You're seeing some tick up in the cases. I should correct this. There's some tick up in the number of cases in places like the Northeast. There have not many, been any in the rest of the United States. The tick up in the national numbers is coming from the Northeast. But even in New York and New York City proper, there is not any uptick in the number of hospitalizations or deaths. And we're not seeing any new, to my knowledge, we're not seeing any new bad cases happen among the vaccinated population. So, you know, even if with this variant, even these more viral variants coming due here, it's not clear that they can overcome the increasing immunity that we have with these vaccines. Because even if you have the vaccine and then you get the virus, your body has a head start on building immunity up to this new variant. You've given it basically the cheat codes for it to go through this faster. And so none of these variants... You see some studies where you say, oh, you know, if, you know, efficacy is lower with this one versus this one. But in reality, all the back, even if even if you can get it with a vaccine, severe cases are gone, hospitalizations are gone, deaths are gone. So the vaccines are doing their job, and that's all of them. So there are some trade-offs here, and you kind of got to look at what's happening here. But Overall, we're in a good place, and until there is direct evidence that these variants overcome vaccine immunity, then there's no real reason to think that we're going to be shutting down anytime soon. I think we're heading towards a full reopen here because none of these variants has shown the ability to overthrow vaccine immunity. Uh, One last thing here I wanted to cover from that new Wall Street Journal story because There are just some flat-out incredible blurbs in this piece that I will link, and they're talking about how these companies have increased production, uh, because these companies are, you know, Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, they are moving mountains in this pandemic. This really is a show of force from both capitalism and Operation Warp Speed, which are flat-out amazing. Uh, So here's some of these blurbs. The Wall Street Journal says, after a slow start, Pfizer and its partner, uh, Biotech SE and then also Moderna Inc. have, ra- have uh, raised output by gaining both experience, scaling up production lines, and taking other steps like making certain raw materials on their own. Pfizer figured out how to stretch scarce supplies of special filters needed for the vaccine production process by recycling them. Moderna shortened the time it needed to inspect and package newly manufactured vials of its vaccine. The companies, along with Johnson & Johnson, which recently launched its own vaccine, are teaming up with other firms to further increase production. Uh, The U.S. government has helped out vaccine makers by giving them access to supplies of the Defense Production Act. Uh, The Biden administration this month said it used the act to provide $105 million to provide funding to Merck and and Company to help make doses of Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine and expedite materials used in its production. Moderna took about three months to make its first 20 million doses of vaccine last year, but now it is making roughly 40 million a month for the United States. Uh, one of Moderna's people said that the company would likely peak production at around 50 million doses a month by summer. Moderna had laid much of the groundwork for its production capacity last year by adding floor space and new equipment to its plant in Massachusetts and another plant in New Hampshire operated by its contract per, uh, partner. It wasn't able to produce a maximum capacity right out of the gate, however, because of the need to introduce new equipment and processes in stages. Moderna was still training newly hired workers and encountered issues like equipment malfunctions, hold up at getting replacement parts, such as filters, and so on and so forth. You would kind of expect that in introducing a new thing like this. Quote, there has not been a single week since we started that there have not been issues, uh, Moderna said. In making medicines, it is absolutely impossible not to have issues in the beginning. It takes time. Now the company has trained employees and figured out how to address challenges like getting raw materials to its plants more quickly. The company has also looked for ways to speed up the process, including shortening the time needed after a batch is finished to inspect and package the vials. It is planning to further speed output by boosting the number of doses in each vials to 15 from 10, something that needs U.S. regulatory approval. So, If you want a place where the Biden administration can really step in here, they should accelerate this and get more doses into these vials. If they are actually serious, they will do the things that these companies are requesting. As I've been pointing out, they haven't been doing these things. They didn't help speed up Johnson & Johnson, and they haven't pushed AstraZeneca to approve theirs so we could have a fourth and potentially fifth vaccine here in the United States, even though we already have doses here. So 
Approving Moderna to put 15 doses instead of 10 into these vials would be a huge boost to our ability to vaccinate more people. Anyway, back to the story. Pfizer has more than doubled its weekly U.S. output of COVID-19 vaccine doses to more than 13 million. And that's up from 5 million at the beginning of February, according to Pfizer. Pfizer increased output partly by figuring out what was, that it was going through supplies of certain filters used in the production process and couldn't get more from its supplier as fast as it needed. So the filters removed certain components from the vaccine during production. The company began recycling the filters so that it could reuse each one after two or three times. So they're finding unique ways too. The company, and this is my favorite part of the story, the company was also facing constraints in obtaining external, well, not this part, but it's this other part here, uh, a little further into the story. It says the comp- Pfizer added more than added more high-speed vial filling lines to its Kalamazoo plant and will expand vial filling to another plant in Kansas. These high-speed vial filling lines can fill up to 575 vials per minute. We're not done by any means, he said. There's no doubt we'll blow through the 13 million a week and go much higher in the very near future. So they're talking potentially 15, 20 million vials a week. But just, you know, imagine that right there. 575 vials flying through this thing in one minute. 60 seconds, 575 vials. Now remember, Pfizer is a double-dose vaccine, which means that's nearly 300 vaccinated people off their manufacturing lines a minute. That is just insane stuff. That was my favorite part of the story. I did not know you could blow through vials at that speed. So, great news on that. This is why I continue to be bullish. You know, all of our projections right now are based on current numbers, and I think we're going to start beating those numbers very quickly just because we are going to have a just a metric ton of vaccination doses at our command. And finally, at this point next week, I should be among the number of people who have at least one vaccination dose. I'm heading out on Wednesday to get my first dose of the virus or vaccine. Uh, it's been given out at my local county health department. So far in my family, my sister's gotten the Pfizer dose. My parents have both gotten Moderna. We're all on the one dose thing here, and I'm going to be getting Pfizer. Uh, my brother's going to end up probably getting the Johnson & Johnson, and I suspect probably when his work ends up paying him to go get one, they'll probably end up doing that one. That's sort of what I expect everyone to do with these private employers. So that's where we are. Most of my family's going to at least have one dose here pretty soon, and I'm going to be having the Pfizer one. So, uh, you know, you'll probably hear an update from me next week. Look for that in the COVID-19 update next week, my experience getting the vaccine. I'm very much looking forward to getting it and returning my life to normal. So that's all for the show for this week. This week's light item is brought to you by the best tournament for March Madness I've ever seen. This year has just been pure chaos. If you've been watching it, you obviously know. Uh, It's not just that the top seeds are losing, though, which makes this so much fun. It's that the double-digit seeds are surging into the Sweet 16. My favorite Cinderella team, and probably yours if you're watching this, is Oral Roberts University. They are truly the true Cinderella team here who came out of nowhere to join the ranks of the elite college basketball teams. And you can tell they really believe in it, which makes them pretty dangerous. They've already knocked off Ohio State and Florida, a pretty hard road to go through. And the end of the Florida game was wild. They had, you know, Florida was down by three. And in the last seconds, they had two, three shots here to try to tie this thing up. And... And Oral Roberts, they they pulled it out. That was the craziest part about it. And the other, the other cool thing about this is they are the first 15 seed to make it into Sweet 16 since Florida Gulf Coast in 2013, I believe the year was. So this is a pretty rare event. It's pretty cool that's happening this year. You know, we we lose March Madness for one year in 2020, and it comes back, and we get double the chaos this year. So it's been pretty cool. So here's the end of that game. Then you can hear that. And to get this defensive rebound. Here's man. He's trying to hunt down that three. This is for the tie. It rims out. Florida chasing it down. Lewis for the tie. That's not there. Oral Roberts, the 15 seed. The upset makers are history makers. And Oral Roberts is in the Sweet 16. Lisa, they have done it again. The Golden Eagles have knocked off the Gators, shooting the three ball 10 for 30. But they got to that free throw line, 19 for 23. One of the best in the country of shooting free throws. 
and rebounding down the stretch was the difference. A party in Indy. A party in Tulsa. There you have it. The number 15 seed knocked off the number two seed, Ohio State. And now is off to the Sweet 16. So that's the call of Oral Roberts University surging into the Sweet 16. It is a pretty cool event. Make sure you tune in to CBS or TNT stations. I believe TBS also has them. So check out the games. They're pretty good. They're going all through this week and next. So it's a pretty fun event. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the content information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure you sign up for that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode. Thank you.